Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, we're joined by Kevin Hannigan. Kevin is chairman of the advisory board for the Data Literacy Project, an organization committed to driving a data-literate world. He is a world-leading expert on data literacy, the author of Turning Data into Wisdom, and also happens to be the chief learning officer at Click. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Kevin. Thanks, Joe. I'm really looking forward to this. So, Kevin, as we get started, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your background. How did you start to become interested in data in the first place? And how did you start working in the area of data literacy in particular? Yeah, so actually, by by trade at university, I was computer science and math and, and stayed on more of the technical side. But as I started getting into um, a few jobs after college, I, I started having a, a passion more for like adult learning and psychology as it relates to you know organizational development and started realizing that even with the technical skills that there's still so many things out there that require non-technical skills that in today's world require us to continuously learn and understand how people think and behave and I didn't know this at the time but in hindsight data is is perfect to industry to be in because it, it's a perfect marriage of both the technical side and, and everything else that you know, has gotten me to this point. So being able to work in a data and analytics company and teaching people how to use products, I I realized there was a a gap that if we teach them how to use the product, but they don't have the fundamental skills of how to leverage data in the right way to get the right insights to make the better decisions, um, it's a wasted effort. And that's really what started my my drive for, for data literacy from a you know, business perspective. And then from a personal perspective, you know, we all use data in our lives. And I started applying some of the things here um, at home and, and helped me make better decisions at home as well. So before we get too far down the road, um, as any data person might do, let's start with some definitions. When we start to talk about uh, data literacy, what does data literacy mean? So what are our goals as we start to pursue this idea of a data literate world? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point because there there are many definitions out there. If you go to Google, you might see 10, 15 uh, different ones. They, they all have some common themes to them. So the, the one that you typically hear the most is the ability to read, work with, analyze, and then either communicate or um, challenge data. And th- that's helpful. But you know, from my perspective, it, it it talks about actions, not outcomes. And you'd mentioned like, what are the goals? So to me, that the outcome of an individual that that has data literacy skills is it enables them to obtain those insights from the data. But then, once you have those insights, it it helps you leverage those insights, understand them to then make decisions and take action, um, the right action, so that we can make better decisions. Yeah, what a good point. So at Click, we call this active intelligence, right? The idea of having data at your hands, at your fingertips, so that you can analyze it, work with it, but most importantly, take action in real time to do something that you might not have done before. So what a really important point that it's not just about being able to understand the data, but being able to take action on that data. And you wrote an entire book dedicated to this proposition called Turning Data into Wisdom. Uh, that is really kind of focused around how do we develop people that have that, comp- that capability to do that. 
And I wanted I wanted to open up this conversation with a with a quote that you have in the introduction of your book that you call um, you call this this analyst analysis of data about the assembly of a puzzle. There's something about a puzzle out there. And I think many people don't think about it that way. They think about there, there's just a chart and revenue went up and revenue went down, but you call it a puzzle. What did you mean? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, part of it goes to how we're brought up in, in school and education is like you take a math class, two plus two is always four. And, and what situation isn't it for? So we're, we we're tend to think of data as cold, hard facts that are an absolute truth. And in the number itself might be an absolute truth. But with data literacy, it's about the interpretation and what does it mean to you? And it has different perspectives. It means different things to different stakeholders. And and that's kind of what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say with data is data is not right or wrong. It's your interpretation of what it means to you is like a puzzle. So why wouldn't you want to turn over more of the puzzle pieces that you can rather than just turning one and saying, aha, I know it, and then being misled. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And one of the statistics that you bring up is about the data that people introduce into that analysis. And you cite a statistic that says that organizations use probably about 12% of the data that's available to them. So they get this partial answer right from the get-go. What do you think are things that are holding organizations back from getting their hands on the right kind of data in the first place? I think a lot of times what's happening is it's it's a misunderstanding of what the outcome is. So, you know, there are lots of investments in data solutions, very valid investments. But when you're looking at coming up with an outcome, you almost have to flip the model and start with the decision to be made. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the decision? And then work backwards to find the data that's relevant. If, if you go and invest in, in build the, the data warehouse or similar, and then try to do some exploratory, find the needles in the haystack, so to speak, you're going to not get the end result. So what happens when you work backwards is you start with a decision and then you try to find the relevant data. Well, it's not an either or, it's a both. Then you need to have the structured data in the right format, accessible to people um, to be able to leverage that. And I think sometimes people think of data as a number. They don't think of data as you know focus groups, interviews, surveys, customer feedback, information, evidence. So when when the statistic comes up, you might have you know a relational database with all of your sales numbers, but you have a ton more data available to you in the organization that that potentially is untapped. Um, so it's the balance of making sure you have the right access to the data and the right format and the right technologies and process, but then knowing the end game and actually starting with the end game and working backwards. It's a really important point, right? The the people focus on analytics, but if you start focusing on the business outcome, then you go backwards. And a lot of what's important in that is actually having people and understanding the business model, the things and moments that drive that, that business process and moments that can be changed with analytics. So what have you seen as effective strategies for helping to infuse business acumen into analytics and analytics into the business. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point is there's a lot of, you know, discussions about roles and, and where their jobs end. And so like you have a data scientist who's very competent with the data, 
but they might not necessarily have the right business acumen. And you might have a, a business leader who, who asks questions that are not analytic ready, like, you know, how's my sales campaign? Well, th- that's not a good analytic question, right? Com- compared to what? And so there, there's different maturity levels of this, but in some situations, organizations will have roles that are, are literally the liaison or the translator between the two. Um, other organizations have, have a role called a decision scientist, which is that is basically their role is the translation between the business and the data. Obviously, there's technology components. The more you can make the data self-service to the, the business leaders, the more that you potentially even use automation to automate the insights. You're not automating the decision per se. You still need the business leader to take the insight and, and find out what's relevant to their business as a result of it and make the decision. But there's there's lots of things you can do from that technology process um, perspective. One of the word, my favorite words is systemic. And so having a process that is systemic, that touches the entire journey and value chain from raw to ready um, is an absolute must for organizations. Your book really is a clinic in what you're talking about and starting at the end point and working towards the beginning. And you introduce a, a framework in turning data into wisdom where you say the most important thing first is to ask the right question. You acquire data, you perform the analytics, you apply some assessment to what that learn that means, and then you announce to the organization what decisions you've made, and then you assess whether or not it works. Um, and I wonder what advice you would give to people as they're starting to create that methodology. How does one bring that methodology, and what kind of personas are you trying to reach in terms of what kinds of people are appropriate for the actual analytical question creation, consumption, and what's the right engagement model for that kind of uh, model to be employed in a company? That's a great question because, I mean, there are a few variables involved depending on the size of the company and how it's laid out. You know, starting with what you said about the analytic question, um, I, I think in general, questioning is something that everyone who touches data from the creator to the curator to the consumer needs to understand. So let's say the, the company set up where they have a, a, a chief data office, right? And, and those individuals there are building out analytic applications on top of data that we're grabbing from you know, a valid data source. If, if the business leader comes to them and says, hey, I need a, I need a report on how my sales campaigns, the, those individuals need to be able to be comfortable in the right culture to, to question that and say, what are you trying to do? What are the expected outcomes? And there's different levels of questioning to, to get to the right point. And I, I just think it's a lost art, or maybe it's not a lost art because lost art assumes we were good at it. But you know, when we're kids, we're really good at asking why. My kids drive me crazy asking why. And I feel like we just don't do that as much. We kind of get forced through education universities not to talk back to the teacher, not to challenge. And so I think one of the key takeaways for organizations, however you set up the model, is is you need to set up a, a culture that allows you to question. Um, I would take one situation that you're working on and, and use the maybe the model from the book and then tailor it to your own needs, however the the organization is set up, and then learn from it and evolve it as needed. It's got to fit into your culture. If there are things that you just know will not work... You, you're not going to change the culture overnight. So you have to then 
slightly adjust the processes to to be kind of a crawl, walk, run approach to to get that first win and get people to see, hey, this is possible. It's great. It's you know we're on the road now. We're on the road to to doing this in a more holistic approach. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That it's much easier to change culture within the context of a specific problem than it is against an abstract background of we should just be data literate. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the skills that one would want to foster in an organization like this. You mentioned that there is a combination that you want of hard skills and soft skills that really make somebody excel in in decision-making and, and accelerating that process. I wonder if you could walk us through what some of those skills are and what successful strategies have been to build those skills. Absolutely. And I think as we do that, it's important to note that data literacy, one of the misconceptions is it is a discrete, finite thing for every role. Data literacy is role specific. So you can almost think of it as like a spectrum. So if if you are a consumer of data and insights that are trying to make decisions, you don't need to be a data scientist to do any predictive modeling. You probably need enough knowledge to be able to interpret the results and tell you what they mean. Uh, on the flip side, if, if you are someone who is in the data office and you're responsible for getting the data in real time, applying the right transformations to it, you might not need as many of the skills and mindsets that are talked about as the consumer. So you have to map out the roles in the organization and what parts they touch in the journey. Are they asking the questions and turning them into analytic questions? Are they acquiring the data? Are they doing the analysis? Are they doing the, making the decision? Are they communicating the decision? Are they assessing decision? Um, and what you'll find is, I think the other thing that is often misunderstood with data literacy is it is equally soft skills and technical skills, and, and maybe not even equally. Maybe it's 70% soft skills, 30% technical, um, especially when you're talking about the, the consumers. So for a consumer, it would be someone who's given an insight. It could be an automated insight. It could be an insight from the data team. Now, they need to know what to do with that. And the best way to do that is to apply some of your soft skills. And we're not just talking about critical thinking or having an emotional intelligence. We're, we're talking about you need to get diverse perspectives to understand what the puzzle means to other people. So how do you what skills can you apply to work in a team and communicate like the skill of inclusion or active listening? How do you share this with others through storytelling? Um, we live in a world that's constantly changing. So how can you apply this when you're in a state of constant flux? You, you need to have exponential thinking. You need to have resilience. You need to learn how to unlearn, so to speak. Um, not only are we adapting to change so quickly, but the, the situations we're dealing with now are so much more complex than they were decades ago. So how do we make decisions that are complex and do things like mitigate our bias or challenge an outdated mental model um, or stay curious and ask questions about what are the alternative paths? And so I, I think that's one of the big takeaways for organizations is they a lot of these skills are things we learn when we're young and then we stop applying them. We stop being curious. We stop thinking critically. Um, we stop active listening. I, I've... I, to be fair, I don't stop it. I 
taken so many courses in reading and writing, the number one communication medium is listening. I've never taken a course in listening. I, I don't know why. I, I probably should have, right? But these are things that we need to bring back. What an important point. We are all taught how to uh, speak, but very little taught on how to listen. Um, and, and to that end, I'd like to explore... Uh, you have a really in-depth approach for how people can convey that information. And I read there being two different themes. Theme number one is we really need to develop as data professionals a storytelling capability. How do we articulate a story that is visually appealing and representative of our situation and that can help people really illuminate a situation and, and make a decision constructively? And then there's a second part, which is really about how do we make it so that the people across the table are primed for that decision and get the, getting them into a place that's away from the noise. So I'd like to start first on the storytelling. What are effective tips that we can give people who are data professionals in the art of storytelling, either from the perspective of presenting the right visual, telling a story in a particular kind of way, and how do we get them to be a little bit less like a data scientist who's an analytic in the analytic phase and more like a storyteller who's compelling that action? Yeah, I, we could talk for hours about this. I mean, it's such an important concept. Like, and why it's fascinating to me, going back to how you asked in the beginning, like my background it's all based in the human brain in, in how we interpret and process information. And I mean, let's be honest, most people are more likely to go watch a Marvel action movie than listen to a, you know, I wouldn't say boring data science. I find it fascinating, but th there's a reason why that's the case. And so it's applying what we hear and see almost in Hollywood to, to business. And what I mean by that is, there's obviously the simple solutions of know the audience, right? So if, if I'm a, a analyst and I'm trying to analyze some surveys that came back, I can use a visualization that I'm familiar with. Maybe it's like a box plot. But if then you share that visualization out to the stakeholders and those stakeholders don't have the same level of knowledge of interpreting those, you're going to have the opposite effect. So it's it's about... And I wouldn't even say it's about simplification. I think that's misunderstood. It's about prioritizing. So to me, the, the first key takeaway is prioritize the message. It, it, by default, you're probably simplifying, but take everything out that's irrelevant um, and share it. And share it to all of the stakeholders, which means that you might have to have a different narrative for each stakeholder group. People who are in charge of making the change versus people who are in charge of the, not in charge, but the consumers of the change who will benefit from it, they're two completely different groups. And so why would you share the same story with them? It comes down to that process, right? Know your audience, know what their knowledge is and aptitude, know what's in it for them, and share the right level of insights and data and visualizations. But it all comes back to the narrative. So I, I started talking about you know, the human brain. There, there is a component of storytelling where so many times in business we're told take the emotion out of it i'm gonna throw a flag on that one and say when we're storytelling you want to put the emotion in it it's the opposite it, it's let's not take the emotion out mm. because emotion is what rallies us right emotion is what gets us motivated gets us ready to act i'm not saying you know lie to people but but make it emotional make it impactful for them so one of the things that I found most 
uh, fascinating and relevant in your book is in your methodology, you have this this uh, step that exists between the analysis phase and the announce phase, which is assess. And I think that most people say, I look at the numbers, the numbers tell a story, I make a decision, and off you go. But you actually insert a really important, you call it the most important phase of the entire process, often something that I think people skip completely. What is the assess phase? Why is it so important? Yeah, so it's if you follow the framework, right, you have an insight. And the insight could have been automated. It could be manual. It could be however you get it. And then you have to orient yourself to what does that mean to my business? You have to know the business context. You have to know the context of the environment around you. And just like we talked about before with the puzzle, why wouldn't you want to try to get different perspectives? So, you know, one of the reasons I I love the term data informed decision making is to me, data driven means you're blindly following the GPS off the cliff because it told you to. Data informed is to your point, you need the data in the analytics but that only gets you so far. You need to have that human element um, to drive it. So, th- so this step in the process is about you have the insight, you have the data, you potentially have the recommendation of what to do. But let's balance that and let's use the human element. Um, there's a really good book out there, Why Smart Executives Fail, um, Sidney Finkelstein. And he studies corporate failure. He actually studies over 50 of them. And he actually found four patterns of what he calls destructive behavior that affects organizations. Um, Three of the four patterns apply to this phase. It's they have a flawed mindset, they have an incorrect assumption, or they've had a cognitive bias that wasn't checked. That is what this phase does is, do we have the right mindset moving forward? Do we have any assumptions, not just the explicit ones, but the implicit ones that we don't even know we have and we're not communicating? Um, Do we have cognitive bias? Yes, we all do. But are we looking to check it and to mitigate it? And if you don't go through this process, um, three of those four patterns, those 50 organizations, they failed. They, They came down to those three things. So to me, it's the most important and vital step. And it's the step that often gets the the least amount of you know, press and street cred as being valuable. Right. And you actually are fairly prescriptive in this phase about making sure that you include people who are, uh, you describe them as cognitively diverse. So I think a lot of people talk about kind of making sure that there's diversity in a workplace, but you actually start to show why that diversity starts to make a difference in the quality of decisions that people are making in this phase. I wonder if you could tell us why that kind of diversity matters. Yeah, uh, studies have been done all all the time. Diversity trumps ability. So you put you know, the smartest people in the room um, together, and then you put a group of people that are smart but not the smartest, but they have, I'll come back to what I mean, cognitive diversity, they're going to outperform. And you see the same thing in sports too. The best teams are the ones that are diverse and know their role as opposed to a team of all um, superstars. And so to me, the, the value, there's obviously intrinsic value with diversity, equity, inclusion as it relates to you want to work for a place that's an equal representation. It helps with recruiting. But when people think differently, when people process information differently, when people, the, the point of cognitive diversity is they have different ways of analyzing problems, they have different ways of interpreting problems, um, 
it just so happens that sometimes that's cultural based based off their experiences. So cultural diversity leads into cognitive diversity. You're going to get a different perspective. You're going to get people that have more of that um, puzzle, that classic concentration puzzle taken away so that you see what's actually underneath of it. And so, Kevin, you experienced some of this cognitive diversity, not only in your professional life, but also in your personal life. So you yourself talk frequently about your own experiences with ADHD. In the introduction to your book, you talk about some of the neurocognitive uh, um, differences that your son has. You, you're careful to explain it as not something that is a negative, but something as a, as a difference. I wonder if you could explore how that has affected your personal life in addition to your professional life. Absolutely. It's such a great point. I mean, I think that's part of my journey toward data is realizing myself. So I, I've had ADHD unmedicated for quite some time. And, it, you know, it, it was always a struggle making eye contact and, and seeing people react like, oh, Kevin's disinterested in a meeting. Oh, Kevin's impatient. Oh, he clearly has other priorities. And what you see on the surface isn't always what's there. And sometimes there's that stigma that people make rash, you know, conclusions just like they do with data. And then fast forward, you know, my oldest son has autism and some mental health challenges. And the same thing happened is, you know, when they act out, when they say something, the norm is to say, no, that's not right. And it was just one day where I was like trying to use one of the strategies we had learned, you know, talk it out, explain it. And when he explained it, it's like, oh, my God, that makes total sense. Maybe I'm the one that has the wrong view. And it just, you know, applying everything we're talking about here is great in business, but it's immediately applicable in your personal life. The The concept of cognitive diversity, the concept of data. Now, in our case, the data might not be a number. It might be, you know, more unstructured, right? How people are perceiving you, what they're saying, what they're writing, Um Think, take a step back and think about why are they saying it? And a lot of times what you're going to find is you're, you are the one that has tunnel vision. They're not wrong. It might not be a situation where anyone's right or wrong. It might be you have the bias, you have the tunnel vision. And more importantly, what they're saying is going to lead you to a better outcome, whether it be at home, you know, work-life balance, or whether it be a better business decision. So that was like that aha moment for me of, of why cognitive diversity is. Everyone has a story. They're all relevant. None of it is irrational or illogical. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some irrational statements, but we all make them. But it, it just showed me that, you know, don't judge a book by its cover and make sure you read the book because it's incredibly relevant for what you're trying to do. And I wonder if there are tips that people can employ to help them figure out where their biases are and how to overcome them during this phase or in their decision-making. Um, and, and also the, the sister question to that is, how do we keep it out of automation? How do we make it so that we don't automate these biases and decisions that are happening made by a computer system instead of a human being? Absolutely. So bias, for those that aren't familiar, cognitive bias or implicit bias, it's when uh, an individual makes a decision that is logical and rational, but subconsciously there, there's a flaw. The, the brain is like the most powerful pattern matching computer in the world, 
but it, at the end of the day, it, it's the brain. It, it ha- it's working on what's in there. And sometimes what's in there is not a representation of the world. It's a representation of our view of the world. And that leads to biases sometimes because we were dealt with millions of inputs on a given day. We can't process everything because the brains will overheat and, and will die, right? So it, it uses these heuristics, um, which is talked about in the book you had mentioned by Daniel Kahneman. And sometimes those heuristics lead to these biases. So, you know, strategies, a lot of strategies, I think the, the first and most important, if you do anything, is admit that everyone has bias. I think that's the biggest hurdle is there are a lot of people that say, no, that's voodoo magic. That Not me. I don't have bias. You can't help it. it. It's how the brain works. So everyone is aware we have bias. Once they're more aware, they're open to strategies for for um, mitigating them. Some of the strategies are what we just talked about. Get a diverse perspective. Um, diverse perspectives allow us to be challenged by people who who might have a different perspective where we have a bias. I mean, one of the common ones is confirmation bias. We tend to look at data that we have an opinion and we see data and we're like, aha, see, I told you my data. It says I'm right. That's not what it's saying. And, and so you need people to challenge that. I mean, it might be saying that, but the point is you, you can't just look for data that supports your opinion and then your brain sees the match and it's like mission accomplished. Well, well, no, because there could be different perspectives. There could be other data out there. Um, so one of the best ways to mitigate is get different perspectives. Uh, the, the second question you said about automation, really fascinating, right? Because people are like, machines are going to take over the world. They're automating, takes out the human, no bias. Well, who is training the, the AI or the machine learning? Well, it's humans. So it, you know what they say, you know, what comes in comes out. So if you input biased data, and there's tons of examples out there in, in current events right now, you're going to output bias. But even if you don't input, the, the algorithm can infer bias in the data. So you could get that automated insight, but it's about being able to take that insight and then understand if there's bias and understand if there's different perspectives. One you know, great tip is there's this big kick on explainable AI, which is great. It it makes it not a black box. Um, I equate this to, I used to hate this when I was younger, but you we were in younger and you, you have to do your math homework. They would deduct points if you didn't show your work. I'm like, why well, do I have to show my work? I know the answer, right? But they do it because if you made a mistake, they want to know where you made the mistake so they can teach you why you made the mistake. So when we use automated decisions and there's no explainability to it, how do we know it wasn't biased? How do we know it wasn't unethical? Um, but just by adding that explainable AI doesn't mean we're mission accomplished. We need the human to then look at the rationale and say, okay, let, let's apply cognitive diverse perspectives. Let's look at different alternatives. Um, really great strategies. I, I could go on. I mean, another just quick one is, in science, we use the scientific method. We we have a hypothesis and we do everything in our power to say it's wrong. And then if we can't say it's wrong, we, we assume it's right. In business, we have a hypothesis. We do everything in our power to prove that we're right. We don't listen to anything else. We're right, we're right, we're right. So it's it's about you know having different perspectives, but maybe going back to science class and using the scientific method in business decision-making. There's something really important that you said there around um, how humans make those decisions, how they involve other people. 
And I want to touch upon something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which was one of the blind spots that we often have is that the data itself will lead the answer. And you really counsel people not to make exclusively data-based decisions, which is really kind of an interesting paradox for people that work in the data world, right? Because we always say data will lead the way, data will tell the answer. But your counsel is to basically combine uh, different kinds of things that you're experiencing in the world and the process from your business with the data. Why do you believe that that's the case? Just case studies and examples show, right? Data is not wrong, but if you need to map it to the business context. And Sometimes there's some subject. I mean, I almost equate it to like every situation you're in an escape room for business, right? Escape rooms, there's time constraints. You're using a lot of soft skills like creativity, resilience, situational awareness. Sometimes there's more than one way to solve it. And it's not black and white. It's not do this and do that. You have to, in that time pressure, put everything together. And that's really, to me, what, what data is. But the other thing I'd highlight is data is historical. It's already happened. So you can make predictions about the future, but you know what's really important is the assumption that's made is everything that was true in the historical data is going to be true in the future. I, I don't know about you, but everything seems to change. So there's there's more complexity. Complexity leads to ambiguity ambiguity leads to uncertainty. When you have uncertainty and ambiguity, the data is going to tell you, yes, this might have been the right answer when the historical data was taken. But what if you took all the data about your customer and were trying to make a decision and then, oh, by the way, yesterday you flipped your business model from perpetual to subscription. Would it still be the right answer? The data is not wrong. It's right. But it's about that perspective. Okay, how much of it is outdated? What is happening? What's the ambiguity? Do we know what's going to happen? What happens if there was an environmental crisis? How does it change things? So it, it's really about the data is telling you what's happened and you build that model, but now you apply it to, is that model correct today? And has it changed? Yeah, you really describe what is in effect a team sport. You are introducing and mixing business acumen, uh, cognitive uh, cognitive di- uh, diversity so that you can analyze the data differently, uh, context around your business strategy, uh, skills around analytics, and those things when, when employed collectively can really drive magic. Absolutely. Well said. Actually, I couldn't say it any better than that. <laughs> so as we wrap up this conversation, Kevin, I wonder if you could take us through what is your vision of the future? How is data changing the world? And how is a data literate world going to happen? And what difference will it make? That's a great question. I mean, I'll talk, I think there's positives and negatives that will happen. I mean, the positive to me is more data gives us opportunities to solve problems that we couldn't solve before. It also gives opportunities to have more people involved in that decision making um, and in more levels, right? I, if I'm going to go on vacation now, I'm using data. I look at reviews from different sites. I look at Airbnb. I look at reviews from airlines. And it, same thing in business. Now the data with self-service data access and analytics, there's more power, but it, it's an opportunity. And, and I want to stress that it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but there's more potential, but with more data comes more combined with the world we're living in, uncertainty and ambiguity and complexity, more risk, more introduction of bias, more issues with data privacy, more issues with data security, more issues with ethical use of data. 
um, more potentially people having false confidence, which is that confirmation bias. Um, it's also going to evolve jobs. The jobs, you know, humans are not going away. But with automation, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have this superhero next to you that's doing number crunching for you? And then it saves your brain to do the human element. So I, I think there's a ton of things we can solve with it. But everyone needs to come to the conclusion and the consensus that data literacy isn't just technical. It's that human element. It's the cognitive diverse perspective. It's critically thinking. It's active listening. It's all these skills we may have learned in primary school and then forgot about and never applied again. Um, and once we do that, I, I really do think it's going to be a positive for majority of the world. So, Kevin, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you'd mentioned the book, so you can find it on Amazon. Um, you can go to my website, kevinhannigan.com, and there's some links in there for um, the book or any of the blogs that you do on the Click blog or LinkedIn or similar. Kevin, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks to the listeners for spending some time. Hopefully you got some value out of it. Kevin Hannigan is chairman of the advisory board for the Data Literacy Project, an organization committed to driving a data literate world. He's a world-leading expert on data literacy and the author of Turning Data into Wisdom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Data science is a team sport, and when done right, different people with cognitive diversity and an array of technical and business skills can discover truly remarkable things simply by working together, engaging in active listening, and being open to the experiences and skills of other people that are vastly different from their own. Kevin Hannigan reminds us that there is a way to formalize this process in our personal and professional lives to drive better decisions and better outcomes. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit Click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.